gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations Podcast. This is episode 86, and it's called Staying Alive, Agatha Christie's and Then There Were None, part two. What's up? We are doing the world's best-selling murder mystery book of all time. I don't know, decent way to finish up summer, you know? This is part two. Don't feel bad if you missed part one, but probably go listen to it. This book is sort of complicated. I don't feel bad saying that. There's ten main characters, and then people start killing each other. I, it's tough to keep track of it. We're going to have to do three parts on this one. Now, if you missed part one, we dropped three bodies in that one. There's a total of ten people. They all got invited to this place called Soldier Island, or specifically a mansion on Soldier Island, but that's the only thing on Soldier Island. You get invited to the island, you go to the mansion. It's a beautiful mansion. Some billionaire in the 30s built it, but like his third wife didn't like sailing, so then he sold it off. Nobody knows who they sold it to. Some guy named U.N. Owen bought it, and then he sent out 10 letters to these 10 strangers. Then all these strangers got into the house, and they're like, I don't, where the hell's Owen at? And they're like, I don't even know who that is, dude. We barely knew why we came here. They all don't know each other, and then people started getting murdered. So, the way this book works is that we start with 10 strangers... We got to know him in part one, did a character rundown. Three of them were already dead. We got seven left. In part two, we're going to lose another three. Then part three, we're going to have our final four. And then I'll also tag on the conclusion, which I don't know right now. That's another thing. I've read the book from like one till 269, which is the whole, that's the book. But then there's a part at the end called an epilogue. And where, like, cops look around, they're like, what the hell happened? And then after that, apparently, there's a solution to what, what happened in this book. I don't know the answer on purpose because I, I think if I knew the answer, I would do a worse job at doing the notes and trying to say the story because I would know the answer. I would, like, weigh the evidence because I would know. I have no idea. I don't know who's doing this. I swear to God, if it turns out to be Fred Narricott, I'm going to flip out. If it's that boat guy who didn't do shit this whole book, but he's the one killing all these people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this a Shutter Island book. I'm not going to be happy with that. Anyway, so, here we go. We're doing, uh, we're doing part two. Just to recap, uh, the three people that have already gotten murdered here. And again, we're trying to deduce who is killing everybody. Uh, okay, so part one, we lost... Uh, Young uh, movie star, hot dude who liked drinking and driving, Tony Marston. He got poisoned night one. Uh, cyanide, slugged down a drink when everybody was like, I want to leave. And he's like, fuck that, let's stay. And then crushed a drink, died, face purple. He's out, so he's probably clear of suspicion. Uh, Mrs. Rogers, who uh, is the female caretaker of the mansion, hadn't met Mr. Owen her and her husband, Mr. Rogers, came to the mansion like two days before the rest of the Ten Strangers st showed up. They, they're in the same boat. They got weird letters from some guy they never met. They just showed up with a list of like how to prepare a house for a house party. And then the day where everybody started showing up, they got another letter that was like, Hey, what's up? I'm UNO and I'm going to be late. I'm not going to be there. So they also don't know what's going on, but they're technically at their job. Mrs. Rogers died. She, she was nervous to begin. That's what she's described in the book as like a nervous person all the time. And then on night one, when all the strangers sat down for a dinner, just being like, hey, how you been? How are you? My name is blah, blah, blah. Uh, Mr. Rogers was given instructions to put a gramophone record on in an adjacent room where holes had been drawn or uh, drilled through the wall 
so that the sound would come through. He didn't know it was on the record. Turns out what was on the record are accusations of murder regarding everybody on the island. That's when we found out that everybody on the island has pretty much killed somebody or a few people or, in one character's case, 20 dudes. Uh, and the gramophone record just go ahead and ruin dinner by blasting that out. Mrs. Rogers had a hard time with that. She wasn't prepared. She went down. She went down. She got hit with a big kibosh by a voice, dude. So then they put her upstairs, and then Doc Armstrong, who's another character we're going to get to in a second, just for a quick character recap, gave her a light sedative. She did not wake up. So she's dead. And then last up, we lost, right at the end of part one, we lost General Mack, who was a retired World War I general. The gramophone accused him of killing a guy, sending him out onto a mission with zero probability or very small probability of coming on back. That happened, and uh, General Mack wasn't ready for all those emotions to be stirred up. He was lured to the island by a letter from UN Owen that was saying, you know, hey, why don't you come hang out? We got some of your old war buddies over here. It'd be nice to see him. And General Mack personally was having a hard time. He was kind of lonely because after he killed that guy in World War I, because he, the guy was sleeping with his wife back stateside or back in England, and that he got the wrong letter in the trenches, like his wife sent the guy she was sleeping with a letter and her husband, General Mack, a letter, but something mixed up with the Postal Service. General Mack opened up the letter meant for the other guy, and he was just like, okay, hey, 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 I got a mission for you. Hey, I got a special mission, man. But he didn't say anything. He just sent that guy to his death. Uh, and one other dude in the trench kind of saw what happened but didn't say anything. But then after General Mack uh, got back from the war, his wife was sort of distant. They never really talked about what happened. She doesn't know that he killed that guy. And then she died of, like, pneumonia two years later. So Mac, General Mac was kind of sad to begin with, you know. And then the gramophone hit him. He was trying to put on a nice face for meeting new people. He got hit with that memory. And that he, he sort of spiraled. And then just sat by the ocean for most of it. And then at the end of part one, he got murdered. Which is where our story is going to pick up in just a second. But let's just recap the seven players we have still alive at the Murder Palace. We have got Miss Emily Brent, who is Krabby Mary Poppins. She's like 67 years old. Uh, she hates cushions on seats. This is an old reference, but if you know of the Kevin Bacon movie Footloose, where the whole town doesn't want to let Kevin Bacon shake his hips and dance or something, I don't... I don't even know if I've watched that whole movie, but I know that's the plot because it's ridiculous. Uh, Emily Brent is like a townsperson from Footloose who's like, I don't like dancing. I don't like cushions. I don't understand what's going on here. She got lured to the island by a letter from uh, Olna Nancy Owen. Some people got letters from UN Owen being like Mr. Owen's wife. You, you like Olna Nancy Owen, but it's all, it's all in part one. The judge figured out that like, Oh, what that actually means is unknown. We all got lured here for no reason, but Miss Brent got lured to the island. The letter was like, hey, I remember you were, like, nice to hang out with, and we don't have any gramophones or dancing out here. Why don't you spend August over here? So Emily Brent showed up uh, just for a free vacation. So she's hanging out, not making too many friends, but she keeps her cool. She keeps her shit together pretty well. Next up, Mr. Bloor, retired uh, policeman from London, uh, still physically strong. He killed a guy. He, uh, the gramophone accused him. He did, he like arrested somebody and faked some evidence. And then that guy got sent to a labor camp and then he died at that labor camp and Bloor got a promotion out of it. That's what the gramophone was talking about. 
And he's just kind of up in the air with it. Like, I don't even know. He didn't really, he did not admit to it uh, when they had the discussion of like, oh, so did anybody actually do those murders? Blue is just hanging out, trying to take it all in, gather evidence, see what the hell's going on here. He's still up. Next, we got Mr. Lombard, a.k.a. Philip Lombard, a.k.a. Mr. Davis, when uh, when Lombard shows up. Lombard's like an ex-mercenary, kind of a weird guy. He keeps saying that he's been in tight spots before. Uh, the Agatha Christie keeps describing him as moving like a panther. She's big on animal analogies with how these people are. I think she was a big fan of the zoo or something before she actually did the final draft of this. But anyway, so Lombard moves like a panther. He brought a gun. The gramophone was like, yo, this guy killed 20 dudes in Africa. And then when they had the discussion after the gramophone came on, Lombard was the first one to be like, yeah, anyway, I'm guilty of that. I did kill those 20 guys. I just, I ran, dude. I was like, we are going to lose this battle. I, I'll see you. <laughs> and those dudes are dead. I don't know what to tell you. So that's Philip Lombard. Panther with a gun. Next up, Doc Armstrong. This is a doctor from London. He gave the sleeping aid to Mrs. Rogers, who didn't wake up. He's kind of nervous. Gramophone called him out on killing this lady on an operating table because he, he had a drinking problem about 10, 15 years ago. Almost ruined his whole life. Didn't ruin his whole life. Has a successful medical practice. But during that drinking problem time, he did kill a lady on the operating table because he was blacked out being like, I got it. What are you talking about? But the only, per- the only person who knew about it was like the medical assistant nun. So it's kind of a secret. He didn't know anybody was going to know about it when the gramophone spit out that accusation. He was like, I've never even heard that lady's name. I didn't kill any lady like that. I've never killed anybody. I am a nice doctor. He's kind of nervous and he gets more nervous as the story goes on. Next up, Judge Wargrave. This is another animal overlay that Agatha Christie puts on. She keeps saying this dude looks like a turtle. He's old. He's got fake teeth. He's a retired London judge. The gramophone accused him of hanging this dude named Seton, who may have not been guilty. Apparently, Seton's lawyer did a great job of getting him off. And then Judge Wargrave was like, he did his final summary thing and really swayed the jury and then got that guy killed. So that's what the gramophone accused the judge of in part one. Judge has a little quiet time to himself after the gramophone calls him out up in his room and the judge is like, I can't give a shit about hanging that guy. I'm glad I did it. I don't care. I don't know what's going on in this house. I don't, I, whatever. I'm old, dude. I've, I've lived a life. I feel pretty good. Then we also have Vera Claythorne. Uh, she's still up and going. This is a student who's on, like, break. She's, like, 25, 26. Uh, The book does say she's athletic, so she is capable of physical murder. Gramophone called her out. She killed a kid. She killed a kid. Uh, She was a nanny for a little boy named Cyril who had a hot uncle that Vera was trying to date and partner up with. But here's a problem. So Cyril and Hugo, the whole family... That she was babysitting for, they were paid, they were rich, right? Here's a problem. When Cyril got born, Hugo's inheritance went to Cyril. And then the whole family now wants Hugo to marry a rich lady. So Vera was dealing with this and then watching Cyril on the beach. And she was like, I don't know, maybe, hey, hey Cyril, you want to go swim out on those rocks out there in those choppy seas? That could be fun. And then Cyril did that because he was like a little kid. He drowned. Uh, Vera did like a fake Baywatch rescue. Didn't I mean, how hard did she actually try there, you know? So that's that's what the gramophone called her out on. Vera's 
thinking about Hugo and that whole situation. She's still not over it, you know? She doesn't know how she handled that. She wrote Hugo a letter. He never got back to her. She's dealing similar to General Mac, where, like, there's a lot of things going on romantically in her head, plus people are getting murdered all around her. She's got a lot on her plate. And last up, our seventh remaining player, Mr. Rogers. Still working. His wife got killed. He's still working. He is a tall, lanky, professional butler who's just trying to do his job, damn it. He, uh, in part one, there was a search party to see if there was an extra person on the island. Doc Armstrong, Bloor, and Lombard huddled up, and then they all searched the island, and they all searched the house. And then when they were in the house, they thought they heard footsteps upstairs in Mrs. Rogers' room where her dead body is. Whenever somebody gets killed, they put them in their room and they just lock the door and be like, well, there that goes. So the search party was like, I hear footsteps in Mrs. Rogers' room. So Bloor, Lombard, and Doc Armstrong bust into Mrs. Armstrong's room, or bust into Mrs. Rogers' room, and and the footsteps were Mr. Rogers just, like, cleaning up his wife's stuff, you know? That was... So... He's he's hanging on, you know. He's do he's doing breakfast, you know. They got a gong in the house that they call breakfast and meals with. He's banging the gong, you know, just staying in it. That's where he's at. So those are our seven players. Those are the three people who got killed. That's what the book's about. Put on your Sherlock Holmes hat. Let's see who's murdering everybody. We got three more bodies to drop, baby. Let's go. All right. So we pick up our story where Doc Armstrong announces the death of General Mack. Now, this is coming off another delicious lunch of cold tongue. That's pretty much all they eat at this place. Armstrong busts back into the house and announces General Mack has been killed. Armstrong and Bloor then bring General Mack's body inside and up to his room. That's what they do with dead bodies. There are only seven army men figures left back on the dining room table now. So that's officially our third one killed. The whole book, when when all the strangers got there and they got to their rooms to settle in, unpack, get a shower, whatever... Every room has this creepy poem about a soldier boy, 10 soldier boys, and they all get killed, and then the last one hangs himself. It's important to the plot, because the murders correspond with the poem, and then there's also, when they first had a meal before gramophone broke out, and, you know, kind of ruined everything, there are 10 China soldier boy figures on the dining room table before people started getting killed, but after Tony Marston got murdered... Ms. Rogers didn't wake up, and now General Max Muerto. There's only seven figures. So whoever's killing people is doing it by the poem that's in everybody's room. And then after they kill somebody, they're they're snatching a China table, little Sarge's hero figure, and throwing it out the window, or, I don't know, pocketing it, burning it, I don't know. Anyway, so it's, it's another thing that's important to the plot. Anyway, we only got seven armament figures left, so General Mac officially, he's dead, dude. Everybody huddles up in the drawing room to talk it out. All right. Doc Armstrong announces General Mack was killed by a blow to the back of the head. First violent death we have. The other two were poisoned, man. And at this news, Judge Wargrave takes control of the room, and then he holds court to establish a set of common facts amongst the seven living remaining players. All right. Number one, Tony Marston and Mrs. Rogers' death were not suicides. This was sort of a thing they talked about in part one, but now that General Mack got clubbed on the back of the head, that this can't be. Those are not suicides. Somebody is killing people. Number two, there's nobody else on the island except for the seven people left in the house. The search party from part one found nothing. 
They looked the whole island over. They measured the house out. Then they checked all the rooms. There's nobody else here. Number three, everybody there is made to pay for their crimes by Mr. U.N. Owen. That's the whole reason they were brought there is that whoever Owen is, is bringing these people to justice for the murders that they never got caught for. And number four, Mr. Owen is on the island somewhere. And number five, he is one of the seven people in the house. This is what they established in the drawing room. After the judge lays this all out, everybody else is like, yeah, I can go with that. That sounds pretty cool. Cool. And then after this, Mr. Bloor points out, he's just like, hey, uh, real quick, just so everybody else knows, uh, Mr. Lombard has a gun. He brought a gun. Yo, show him that revolver, dude. Yo, he brought a gun. People are like, Jesus Christ. That's actually a tough character thing for Lombard to deal with when you're trying to make friends with a new group of people. Because Lombard came in on a fake name. He was like, I'm Mr. Davis. And then the gramophone said there was no Mr. Davis in the gramophone dinner message. So that was a tough conversation Lombard had to have with a new group of people where it's like, hey, I was lying to everybody's fucking face, like out the gate. And now in the drawing room, is Bloor reveals that like, oh, also he brought a gun. So that's two strikes as far as making new friends goes for Lombard. The judge then asked Armstrong, based on the wound that killed General Mack, can anybody in the house be ruled out based on lack of physical strength? And Armstrong is like, no, nah, anybody could have clubbed that dude on the back of the head. He was just sad. I mean, everybody knows he was just sitting by the water most of the time. He wasn't really talking to anybody. You just come up behind him, hit him with a golf club. Uh, you can kick him in the back of the head. I, that probably wouldn't work. Maybe like a pipe. I don't know. Anyway, everybody here could have definitely killed that guy like that. And the judge is like, all right, since anybody had the physical strength to do it, let's go through who had the time to kill General Mack this morning. All right, Wargrave goes first, and he's like, I do not have an alibi. I was upstairs chilling on the terrace all morning. Nobody was seeing me. It was just me and my false teeth hanging out. Bloor is then like, well, during the search party, I mean, I, I could have definitely done it. You know, I went up to the house for rope at one point in time because Lombard wanted to be a panther going around the cliffs and stuff. So I had alone time. So technically, I definitely could have killed General Mack, but I didn't do it. Lombard is like, yeah, I had alone time outside too. I mean, I definitely could have killed him. You know, I know that looks bad, but I, I could have done it. Miss Emily Brent is like, I'm in the same boat as Judge Wargrave. I was upstairs on the terrace all morning and the judge is like i didn't see you on the terrace and she was like i was on the other terrace there's two ter- it's a nice house upstairs has two terraces there's a west terrace and an east terrace okay your tortoise shell was on the west terrace i was chilling on the east terrace so emily brent no witnesses definitely could have done it vera claythorne then says like i mean i i went and talked to him like an hour before lunch so i mean i de- i mean i I could have killed him then, you know, so you can't really rule me out. And then the butler, Mr. Rogers, was bopping around all morning, lighting fires, doing all sorts of stuff. So he, he could have killed him, you know. So nobody could be ruled out from any of the first three murders, including General Max. So everybody's still on the table. They all had available way to do it. And they all had the strength to be able to hit that dude in the head hard enough to kill him. All right. Wargrave says UNO and is probably an insane criminal. And then everybody should probably keep an eye out for their own safety. And then they break the huddle. They're like, all right, good, good talk, everybody. All right. All right, I guess hang out. Uh, but we, that's the end of our meeting. All right. Post-drawing room meeting, side conversations break out. Vera and Lombard 
lean on a window. It's starting to rain outside. They're leaning on a window. It's a sad conversation. They're like, oh, everybody's getting murdered, right? So Vera and Lombard agree. This is totally somebody's murdering people, okay? These are no suicides. Let's agree on that. Lombard is like, I know it's Wargrave. 100% it's Wargrave. I'm telling you, this is some weird thing. He's retired and he's trying to get justice outside of the system of justice. I think he planned all this shit. It's Wargrave. And Vera's like, no way, dude. It's Doc Armstrong. It has got to be Doc Armstrong. We got two deaths via poison. He was the last. He gave Mrs. Rogers those sleeping meds. We don't know what the hell he gave her. She didn't wake up. That looks terrible. Doctors are overworked in general. And also, he could have easily beat General Mack to death when he went down to go get him for lunch. He was, Armstrong was the guy who was like, I'll go get him. He could have just, he could have done it there. And then also, if he killed him then, he could have ran, remember how he ran back in the house? He was all out of breath, like, oh my God, General Mack's dead. He could have used that to hide his, I just murdered a guy energy. You go down there, hit him with what, I don't know, hit him with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> his head doesn't work anymore. And then you come back, even if your heart rate's going, you, you're, people think you're excited because you ran back and you're scared of a murder when really you're just hiding that, like, I just murdered energy. That's obviously a thing I've thought about when trying to figure out who is killing all these people. All right, so that's what Vera says. That's, the, that's, that's Vera and Lombard's side conversation. Bloor and Rogers break off for a side combo in the kitchen. This is a weird conversation because Bloor is sort of just kind of sitting there because I think Bloor believes it's Rogers at this point. He's like... Do you know who it is? Who do you think killed your wife, dude? And Rogers is Rogers is still clocked in. Like chopping up vegetables and being like, I don't know, man. I really I just don't really want to think about this shit. I, I really have there's just a lot going on, you know? There's a lot going on. I'm happy to be talking to you. I have no idea who the hell it is. So that's their side conversation. Armstrong and Wargrave. Then break off in the smoking room, and they have a side conversation. Well, it's mostly just like Rogers or uh, Doc Armstrong is pounding like fourth, like just like three hits off of every cigarette he lights, and then throwing it down, stomping it out, and relighting a cigarette, and just being like, "I gotta get out of here. I can't." Like Armstrong's starting to crack up at this point, and Judge Wargrave is just calmly like, "All right, well, look, the weather's pretty bad." It's going to get worse. Nobody's going anywhere. It's fine. You just got to be on your guard, dude. Don't worry about it. And then finally, our seventh player, Emily Brent, is just upstairs alone, journaling, collecting her thoughts, reading the Bible a little bit. And then she she kind of like passes out and falls asleep. I don't know if she got low blood sugar or what, but she she's journaling. And in the middle of it, she writes down, the murderer is Beatrice Taylor. And then she wakes up and she's like, oh shit, did I write that? Cross that shit out. What the hell am I thinking? Now, Beatrice Taylor, if you didn't listen to part one, I don't even know if I said it in part one. Beatrice Taylor is the name of the girl that Emily Brent pretty much murdered. Um, This is the gramophone accusation for Emily Brent. Beatrice Taylor was a young lady and Emily Brent was running like a manor school for girls type deal. And so Beatrice Taylor was this girl who like came to Emily Brent's private manners tutoring thing and then uh i don't know if beatrice taylor like went out a couple of times or like text somebody or some shit and then emily brent was like oh you gotta get out of my school so she kicked out beatrice taylor beatrice taylor didn't have shit through her life like going on anyway so she got all sad and then jumped in a river and died 
Uh, so, you know, Emily Brent pushed her to suicide. That's the death that she has to, she's been brought to the island to atone for more or less. And that's the name she writes down in the journal. And that's why when she writes it, she's like, yo, cross that shit out. I can't be thinking about that. All right. Next up, everybody has tea in the living room. All right. Storm's getting worse out there, but it's time for some tea. Story does take place in England. Uh, Mr. Rogers pops in during tea and he's like, hey, heads up, just uh, somebody stole a shower curtain from upstairs. I don't know. I don't know why you take a shower curtain or where you take it, but we are, we are down one shower curtain from upstairs. Got all the spoons. Somebody took a shower curtain. It's the weirdest theft I've ever seen in my, in my life. And Bloor cuts him off and he's like, all right, well, you can't kill anybody with a shower curtain, dude, so... I don't know. Well, thanks for the news, but I don't really give a shit. All right. So after that, dinner comes and goes, passes uneventfully. Everybody has a lot on their mind. Not a whole lot of chit chat at dinner. By 9 p.m., Vera and Emily Brent decide to call it a night. They go upstairs and they deadbolt their doors. About an hour later, 10 p.m., the remaining four dudes who don't work there, which is Bloor, Lombard, Judge Wargrave, and Doc Armstrong, go upstairs, and also deadbolt themselves in for the night. The butler, Mr. Rogers, is the last one to go to bed. He locks up, cleans the kitchen up, finishes his job, and then he goes to his new room. Like, when the search party found Mr. Rogers getting, like, his wife's stuff out of her out of her room where her body was, you know, that was kind of an awkward thing. Rogers was like, I gotta move my room. I can't be, I don't want to sleep in here, you know. You understand. So Rogers has a new room downstairs, not a big deal. He packs up, locks himself in his downstairs room. But before he goes to bed, he checks like a giant Beauty and the Beast uh, cabinet. I don't even know the name of this thing. I don't know the name of this giant piece of furniture. You know what I'm saying? You remember in Beauty and the Beast, the giant thing? I think it's like white with like purple trim. It comes alive. That one. He checks one of those in his room. There's nothing in it. And then the last thing he says before Rogers goes to bed is... No more China soldier tricks tonight. So Roger's feeling pretty confident here. All right. That's the end of day two. Let's do a quick player recap. We got Vera, Emily Brent, Judge Wargrave, Doc Armstrong, Mr. Bloor, Mr. Philip Lombard, and Mr. Rogers. Everybody's still hanging tough. Here we go. Morning of day three. All right. 9.30 a.m. Philip Lombard wakes up and he says out loud to himself, it's time to do something about this. He then goes out of his room and he goes get Mr. Bloor from his room. Bloor is still very sleepy. Lombard says, yo dude, it's like 10 a.m. There's no breakfast. Nobody hit the gong to wake us up. Where is Rogers at? Bloor is like, all right, this is a good point. Hold on, let me put some pants on, dude. I'll be out in a sack, right? All right, so then after Bloor and Lombard are huddled up, they're getting a crew going in the morning. They go and get Doc Armstrong. They see that Emily, Bl uh, Emily, <laughs> I call her Emily Blunt because that's the picture I used to remember who that character was. So if I call her Emily Blunt during this, I, it's the same thing. Crabby Mary Poppins. So Emily Blunt, Emily Brent's room is empty. But Lombard, Bloor, and Doc Armstrong are huddled up. They're trying to find out where the hell Rogers went. Vera's already up and going. The judge gets up very similar to Bloor where he's up, but he's kind of sleepy. You got to give him a pass on that. He's like 100 years old. He's still, he's still tuckered out, okay? This is a lot for him. And then, uh, all right, so then at that point in time, the, the crew sees Emily Brent come in from outside. 
and it is storming badly outside, and she was outside alone. So Lombard, Bloor, and Armstrong, and the judge, I mean, everybody asked Emily Brent, like, all right, uh, um, have you seen Rogers? Miss, I went outside on my own with a murderer on the island. Have you seen Rogers? And she's like, nah, but the weather's still bad. And like, okay, well, whatever. Search continues for Rogers. Everybody checks the dining room. There is breakfast on the table, so Rogers was up and moving this morning, which is nice. Okay. But then Vera notices that there are now only six little soldier boy statues on the dining table. There were seven when we went to bed. There's only six now. We don't know where Rogers is at. The crew then goes to check a small woodshed in the back and discovers Mr. Rogers dead from getting hit in the head with an axe. Oh, no. There he went. Oh, no. Worst part of that is that that guy got killed while he was clocked in. I was thinking about this one. He was at his job. It's so much worse to get killed at your job. The guy was technically working and he got killed by an axe. Oh, buddy. Doc Armstrong once again confirms everybody had the strength to pull off this murder too. It, yeah, so Rogers got hit in the head with an axe. Barra kind of loses it a little bit. Seeing Rogers, he got he got kerplunked. So Vera's like, oh my God, I'm flipping out. And then she starts talking about the poem about like, are there bees on this island? Because the next line of that Soldier Boy poem is about somebody getting killed by a bee. Are there bees on this island? She kind of gets hysterical. And then Doc Armstrong does that thing that from old timey movies where like you slap a person <laughs> who's like flipping out and then Vera calms down. Now in the BBC version of this, like during Rogers axe head murder, because I watched the BBC thing too. Uh, they have Armstrong flip out during this during this scene. I don't know what I don't know if that was like a choice of like just the storytelling for BBC or what. But I have also been putting that in my head of like, all right, why did they change that? Does that mean anything with who the murderer is? At this point in time, I am running laps in my head to try to figure some stuff out, like contrasting different forms of this story to be like, why would they change this? Anyway, so Vera's having a hard time and she's like, where are some bees at? Bees are going to kill the next person. Meanwhile, we are now down to six players. Rogers is out. He has rejoined his wife in the spirit realm. All right. Breakfast day three, minus one, Mr. Rogers. Vera and Emily Brent go to finish making breakfast for a little. Uh, Roger set the table, but they're still like toast and stuff. So they go in the kitchen to, to figure it out. Bloor then huddles up with Lombard and claims that he knows that it's Emily Brent. Bloor kind of goes off here and he's like, yo, look, I'm telling you, it's religious hysteria. Miss Emily Brent never freaks out, dude. Have you ever seen her freak out ever? No. At the gramophone, she did nothing. When we're looking at all these dead bodies, she did nothing. She was outside alone this morning, chilling. You know why you go walk around outside on an island where everybody's getting murdered alone? Because you're the murderer. You know you're not going to get murdered. There's no danger. You can walk around, do whatever you want, dude. So Bloor makes an impassioned case that, like, it is Miss Emily Brent. And Lombard is like, yeah, I mean, I guess, maybe, man. But I'll tell you one thing. It's definitely not you because you're so dumb. <laughs> and, uh, and then Lombard asked Bloor if he was guilty of his gramophone accusation. He's like, hey, remember how that thing? Anyway, this is right after calling him dumb. Like, you are so dumb. It's definitely not you. Also, did you kill that guy? And Bloor's like, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I, I did make up some evidence. I didn't know he was going to get killed, dude. They sent him to a labor camp. I did get a promotion out of it. 
So technically, I think the, the gramophone would be correct, but there were a lot of outside factors as well. And then Lombard's like, hey, thanks for telling me. It's too bad you're so dumb. You're definitely going to get killed next. <laughs> and Bloor's like, no, you're dumb, dude. You're going to get killed next. And Lombard's like, nah, I'll be fine. I'm good. I've been in tight places before, but you are going to die soon because you are so dumb. <laughs> Meanwhile, finishing cooking up breakfast with Vera and Emily Brent. Here we go. Vera and EB. Or Vera asks Emily Brent how she stays so calm. And this is when we find out Emily Brent starts talking about her childhood, about she was raised that, like, you just never show emotion. No matter what, you just don't show emotion. You keep your shit together the whole time. And Vera is kind of confused by this. It's like, okay, but, like, aren't you scared of being on an island where people are getting murdered? Mr. Rogers, you know, got hit in the head with an axe, dude. Aren't you worried about this at all? And Emily Brent doesn't, like, really know how to process that question. And then we find out that she's relying on her on her faith. She reads the Bible quite a bit, too. So she, in her mind, that like, only the wicked are going to get killed on this island. And so, and since she has no remorse for the death of Beatrice Taylor or anything, she doesn't feel bad. She's like, hey, man, I didn't do anything. I just kicked that girl out of school. It was on her. She hasn't even really thought about the possibility of getting murdered. She's on a totally different wavelength. And that's how she stays so chill. All right, breakfast is served. Here we go. Six remaining people politely eat breakfast, mostly just past the toast conversation. Everybody's busy running laps in their head. They're, they are on an island. They're trying to figure this out the whole time. And they're also staring at the six remaining little soldier boy hero, or <laughs> Sarge's hero, soldier boy China figures in the middle of the dining table. I don't know why they don't take those off of the table. That's something they could have, I, I mean, they leave them on the table the whole time, but they stare at them the whole time and it freaks everybody out. Anyway, so that's breakfast. As breakfast is being cleared, Judge Wargrave is like, hey, how about this, guys? Are you guys down for another huddle up in the drawing room to establish facts? The butler did get killed with an action. We should probably talk about this and see, just make sure we're all on the same page, you know? So everybody migrates to the drawing room again for another meeting, except for Miss Emily Brent. She is still seated at the table after breakfast. She tried to get up and she did the thing where like, where like if you ever did the thing where like you're drinking and you're sitting down for like a couple of hours, for like three, four hours, you're kind of in the same seat and then you get up and you didn't realize how fucked up you were. Emily Brent kind of has one of those when she tries to get up for, for breakfast. She's like, all right, I'm going to get up. Oh, my God. Hold on. So she's, she's still seated at dinner. She can't get up to go to the drawing room. And Doc Armstrong's like, hey, do you want some medicine? And she's like, no, I don't want any medicine from you. Last person got medicine from you died in her side. I don't want that shit. I just need a second. I feel kind of weird. I'm going to ride it out. So Emily Brent stays in the drawing room after breakfast as everybody else, or uh, she stays in like the dining room. Everybody else goes in for the meeting for Judge Wargrave. Emily Brent's like, I just need a beat again. I don't know. I, I, I don't drink water as much as I should. I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> just give me a second. I feel tuned up, okay? I need a second. So as Emily Brent is chilling in the dining room by herself, everybody else goes into the drawing room. Now, as everybody's in the drawing room without Emily Brent, Mr. Bloor once again Goes back. He does like a Mussolini speech about like, I'll tell you who the murderer is. 
It's that lady who's saying she's messed up in the in the, the, the dining room right now. That's why she's not here. I'm telling you, she was outside alone. He does like a whole thing. And afterwards, the judge is like, all right, man, we'll just go get her. Then we'll talk about it, I guess. So the group goes back in to grab Emily Brent, see how she's doing. And Emily Brent is face down on the dining room table all the way dead. That's it. It's over. So what happened to Emily Brent after everybody went into the drawing room? She's still chilling at the table being like, I feel kind of weird, but we've been here before. We'll be all right. Just chill for a sec. And then she felt way worse and then heard a buzzing and saw a bee on the window. And then she was like, is that a bee? A bee from the poem? What the fuck? And then she she felt like she got stung on the back of the neck by a bee. And then she got TKO'd. She was down. That's what happened to Brent. And then the drawing room discovers her. She's face down, muerto. And Doc Armstrong comes up and finds a puncture wound on the back of Emily Brent's neck. Emily Brent was killed by a hypodermic syringe filled with cyanide. At this, Bloor kind of flips out a little bit because he just gave like a 12-minute speech. Nobody wanted to hear about how this lady's guilty, and now she, now she's dead, dude. So he kind of flips out. He's a little overwhelmed. He thought he had it. He didn't have it. Armstrong then admits to bringing a syringe on the island. So at this, the group goes upstairs to Armstrong's room, checks it for the syringe. The syringe is missing. That looks bad, Doc. All right, well, after this, Judge Wargrave is like, all right, look, things are getting too crazy, okay? We're going to search everybody's room. Then we're going to put all drugs and weapons. They're all going to go into a lockbox. They find a box. It's got a key on it. Like We're going to put all the dangerous shit in here. The plan is going to be, after we get all the dangerous stuff in here, we're going to give the lock. We're going to lock the box with the key. Then we're going to give the box key to like a strong dude. We're going to give the, like the box key to Bloor. And then we're going to lock the actual physical box into a Beauty and the Beast cabinet with a different key and give that key to Lombard. In this, nobody will be able to get their hands on any of this dangerous shit. It's a pretty good plan. So they search everyone's room. They get drugs from Doc Armstrong. They get drugs from Judge Wargrave. And then the judge is like, all right, Lombard, I'm going to need that gun. That gun has got to go in this box. It's the most dangerous thing on this island, dude. Lombard protests, and he's like, I'm not giving you that gun. It's my gun, bro. And then the judge is like, all right, well, here's the thing. You can say that, but there's five other people right now, and you could probably fight like two or three of them, but the five of us could beat you up. So I'm going to need that pistol, bud. So Lombard is like, all right, that's a decent point, actually. All right. So then they go to Lombard's room. He opens the drawer where the gun is supposed to be. The gun is gone. We got a gun on the loose on an island full of murder, or at least with one murders and full of scared people. We got a gun missing. Nobody's too thrilled about that. Mr. Bloor is then like, oh, wait, I got an idea. He goes and checks the window outside the dining room where Emily Brent got hypodermic syringed. There's a window pretty close to where her dead body was. He Bloor goes and checks out there. He finds the syringe and he finds a China figure that got thrown out the window after somebody murdered Emily Brent. They're like, ah, good thinking, Bloor. How about that? Gun's still missing, though. Everybody checks the whole house looking for the only gun on the island. Can't find it. We got a missing gun, but the lockbox plan kind of works. 
They do the thing where you lock the box, lock the cabinet. So most of the dangerous shit's gone. All right, all remaining players take up residence in the drawing room to hang out. Just to recap, we got five left on the island. We got Vera Claythorne. She is currently quiet and acting like a bird that hit its head on a window. We got Philip Lombard. He is in ultra panther mode at this point. He's so, he's like almost jumpy. He's so ready to go. We got Judge Wargrave, who is now truly connected with the spirit of a tortoise at this point, and he is just chilling in a big chair. We got Doc Armstrong still pounding cigs and fidgeting around. Mr. Bloor is like a big confused animal now. And at this point in time, the group decides, all right, we're all in the drawing room. We're hanging out. Only one person is allowed to leave the room at a time or the entire group has to go. Too many people are getting murdered. Which brings us to lunch of day three. Everybody has some more delicious cold tongue out of a can. They all eat it leaning around the same kitchen counter. Don't talk a whole lot. All right, quick meal. Back to the drawing room. And at this, they all just start staring and thinking about each other all afternoon. That's pretty much all you can do. At 5 p.m., Vera decides to make some tea. She offers to go make the tea alone, but then everybody's like, nah, we remember the rules. And especially if people are going to be drinking tea, let's just all go into the kitchen, okay? Just in case. Not saying anything, but we don't want you to poison anybody to death, you know, just in case you're a murderer. So everybody goes into the kitchen. Vera makes some tea. Only Bloor and Vera have some tea. Lombard, Armstrong, and the judge all enjoy a whiskey. At that, they all go back into the drawing room. Now, at this point in time, it's like 5 p.m., almost 6 p.m., the sun is setting, and they all realize, ah, oh, shit, the electricity on the island no longer works. They didn't notice when it went out during the day because it's light outside, the windows are open, now that it's getting dark, they realize that since Rogers got killed this morning by an axe, nobody is looking after the generator on the island, so there's no more electricity. So now you're in a, ha a murder palace with no electricity. They talk about going to fix a generator. Nobody knows how to do that. So the judge is like, all right, well, I think there's some candles. Let's all go get some candles. So on the night of day three, we got five people left, candles only. Somebody's not waking up tomorrow. 6.20 p.m. Vera can't take it anymore. Hanging out in the drawing room, just sitting and eating, staring at each other, thinking about murder. At 6.20, she's like, I got to go upstairs. I'm going to go wash my face with cold water, okay? She goes up to her room. Now, on the, the policy they're doing, she can leave alone. It's not a big deal. Just one goes at a time or everybody goes, but she's just going one. She's not bringing back any tea. Nobody's going to drink anything from her room, so she's allowed to go by herself. As she goes up the steps, her mind starts wandering. She's thinking about Hugo, thinking about that kid. You know, that, didn't, that was not a smart decision. Think about how she wrote Hugo that letter and he never got back to her. She doesn't know if, if, like, he knows that maybe she helped kill that kid. I don't know. So she's got a lot going on in her mind. Also, there's, the house is dark. She's only got a candle. And there's, like, four, there's like what, what we got five? There's five dead bodies in this house. You got a candle. You're thinking about that shit. It's dark and there's five dead bodies in this house. The house is already haunted, technically. So she goes up to her room, she opens her door, her one Charles Dickens candle gets blown out when she opens her door, she kind of has a moment of freaking out where she's like, oh shit. Oh no. But then she composes herself and she's like, dude, it's all in your head, don't worry about it. 
She walks into a room and then she feels a cold, clammy hand touch the side of her neck and she starts flipping out, dude. She is like, what the fuck? I can't be that. She is screaming, dude. Everybody downstairs hears Vera screaming. They think she's getting murdered. So, search party from part one regroups. We got Lombard, Bloor, and Armstrong darting up the steps. You know Lombard was itching to run somewhere. That guy's in Panther mode, dude. They all run up the steps, and they, they have their own little Charles Dickens candle so they can see what the hell happened in here. Vera's on the ground. She is freaked out. But the candlelight reveals it wasn't a hand that touched her neck. It was just seaweed. There's a big black hook in Vera's room. In like an old style house of mansion built from like the 1930s. So there's like a big hook where like you could put a really heavy chandelier or like fan fixture or whatever. It's a, it's a sturdy hook, right? It's in the middle of a room. But there's no light fixture on it. Somebody got into Vera's room, put a bunch of wet seaweed on there, and then snuck out and didn't say anything. That's what hit Vera's neck. That's what freaked her out. There's a lot of relief at this point in time between the search party and Vera and being like, oh my God, all right, it's just seaweed, calm down. Doc Armstrong is like, hey, do you want some brandy? I'm th the Doc Armstrong, his only medical anything in this, <laughs> in this whole book is like, you want brandy or I'll slap you in the face. It's, it's medicine from the, from the 1930s, dude. So Vera's like, yeah, I, I want some brandy, but like, they hand her a glass and Vera's like, no, 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 go get me a fresh bottle, okay? I've seen Anthony Marston died via brandy. Go get me a regular bottle. So they go and do that. And I think Bloor is like, ah, clever. Very smart of you. So Vera has a, she has a little Chardonnay on the floor, get some color back at her face. And at this, they're like, wait, where's the judge at? And then Bloor, Lombard, and Armstrong are like, wow, he's kind of old, man. You know, that guy. We ran up here. He was probably like, my old bones can't get up there. If she's dead, she's going to be dead anyway. So he's probably downstairs chilling. We should actually probably go see him. So at this, Lombard, Bloor, Armstrong, and Vera all make their way downstairs. And they enter the drawing room. And then they find out that uh, they see the judge. He's sitting in that big chair. However, somebody has shot the judge in the head. Oh, no. Classic misdirection. Oh, no. Somebody made everybody run upstairs to check on Vera and then shot the judge in the head. Made a total mess of the drawing room, I bet. Oh, for shame. Also, the judge got killed a little exotically. He didn't just get shot in the head. That stolen shower curtain appeared back up. They put it over him like a sash. And then, oh, oh also earlier in the book, I missed this part, but like, Somebody stole some yarn from Emily Brent. Emily Brent's a big, like, knitting person. Somebody stole some yarn from Emily Brent. And so on top of the judge's dead shot in the head body in this chair, he's, he's got some yarn, like it's a judge wig. And, and then he is covered in that, uh, that stolen shower curtain. So he got, he, got, <laughs> he got killed and then covered in thrift store items. Uh, so couldn't pull, his, uh, couldn't pull his little turtle head inside of his shell fast enough. Oh, no. So the judge is out. That's it. And that is our third body of part two. Just to recap. So we now, this leaves our final four contestants for part three and the exciting conclusion of And There Were None by Agatha Christie. Who we still got left on the board? We have, first up, almost got killed by seaweed but still hanging in, Vera Claythorne. All right. 
We also have big confused animal, Mr. Bloor. Okay. We got Don't Tell Me We're Out of Cigarettes with Dr. Armstrong and the Sex Panther himself, Philip Lombard, coming down the home stretch here. Those are our final four contestants on Murder Palace at Soldier Island, a.k.a. Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show. I just still don't know who it is. I'm going to do part three, and then uh, we'll wrap it up next week, guys. I hope everybody has a nice weekend, and thanks for listening to the show. All right. I'll talk to you guys later on.